Chapter Fifty Two of Nicholas Nickleby by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Nicholas Nickleby by Charles Dickens. Chapter Fifty Two. Nicholas despairs of rescuing Madeline Bray, but plucks up his spirits again and determines to attempt it. Domestic intelligence of the Kenwickses and Lilivicks. Finding that Newman was determined to arrest his progress at any hazard, and apprehensive that some well-intentioned passenger, attracted by the cry of Stop Thief, might lay violent hands upon his person and place him in a disagreeable predicament from which he might have some difficulty in extricating himself. Nicholas soon slackened his pace and suffered Newman Knox to come up with him, which he did in so breathless a condition that it seemed impossible he could have held out for a minute longer. I will go straight to Brace, said Nicholas. I will see this man. If there is a feeling of humanity lingering in his breast, a spark of consideration for his own child, motherless and friendless as she is, I will awaken it. You will not, replied Newman. You will not indeed. Then, said Nicholas, pressing onward, I will act upon my first impulse and go straight to Ralph Nickleby. By the time you reach his house, he will be in bed, said Newman. I'll drag him from it, cried Nicholas. Toot toot, said Knox, be yourself. You are the best of friends to me, Newman, rejoined Nicholas after a pause, and taking his hand as he spoke. I have made head against many trials, but the misery of another, and such misery, is involved in this one, that I declare to you, I am rendered desperate, and know not how to act. In truth, it did seem a hopeless case. It was impossible to make any use of such intelligence, as Newman Noggs had gleaned, when he lay concealed in the closet. The mere circumstance of the compact between Ralph Nicobai and Gride would not invalidate the marriage, or render Bray averse to it, who, if he did not actually know of the existence of such understanding, doubtless suspected it. What had been hinted with reference to some fraud or meddling had been put with sufficient obscurity by Atogride, but coming from Newman Knox, and obscured still further by the smoke of his pocket pistol, it became wholly intelligible unintelligible, and involved in utter darkness. There seems no ray of hope, said Nicholas. The greater necessity for coolness, for reason, for consideration, for thought, said Newman, pausing at every alternate word, to look anxiously in his friend's face. Where are the brothers? Both absent on urgent business as they will be for a week to come. 
Is there no way of communicating with them? No way of getting one of them here by tomorrow night? Impossible, said Nicholas. The sea is between us and them. With the fairest winds that ever blew, to go and return would take three days and nights. Their nephew, said Newman, their old clerk. What could either do that I cannot, rejoined Nicholas? With reference to them especially, I am enjoined to the strictest silence on this subject. What right have I to betray the confidence reposed in me? when nothing but a miracle can prevent the sacrifice. Think, urged Newman, is there no way? There is none, said Nicholas, in utter dejection. Not one. The father urges, the daughter consents. These demons have her in their toils. Legal right, might, power, money, and every influence are on their side. How can I hope to save her? Hope to the last, said Newman, clapping him on the back. Always hope. That's a dear boy. Never leave off hoping. It don't answer. Do you mind me, Nick? It don't answer. Don't leave a stone unturned. It's always something to know you've done the most you could. But don't leave off hoping, or it's of no use doing anything. Hope. Hope to the last. Nicholas needed encouragement. The suddenness with which intelligence of the two usurous plans had come upon him, the little time which remained for exertion, the probability, almost amounting to certainty itself, that a few hours would place Madeleine Bray forever beyond his reach, consign her to unspeakable misery, and perhaps to an untimely death. All this quite stunned and overwhelmed him. Every hope connected with her that he had suffered himself to form or had entertained unconsciously seemed to fall at his feet, withered and dead. Every charm with which his memory or imagination had surrounded her presented itself before him only to heighten his anguish and add new bitterness to his despair. Every feeling of sympathy for her fallen condition and of admiration for her heroism and fortitude aggravated the indignation which shook him in every limb and swelled his heart almost to bursting. But if Nicholas' own heart embarrassed him, new man's came to his relief. There was so much earnestness in his remonstrance and such sincerity and fervor in his manner odd and ludicrous as it always was, that it imparted to Nicholas new firmness and enabled him to say, after he had walked on for some little way in silence, You read me a good lesson, new man, and I will profit by it. One step at least I may take, I'm bound to take indeed, and to that I will apply myself tomorrow. What is that? asked Knox wistfully. Not to threaten Ralph, not to see the father. To see the daughter, Newman replied, Nicholas, to do what, after all, is the utmost that the brothers could do if they were here, as heaven sent they were. To reason with her upon this hideous union, 
to point out to her all the horrors to which she is hastening, rashly it may be, and without due reflection, to entreat her at least to pause. She can have had no counsellor for her good. Perhaps even I may move her so far yet, though it is the eleventh hour, and she upon the very brink of ring. Bravely spoken, said Newman. Well done, well done. Yes, very good. And I do declare, cried Nicholas, with honest enthusiasm, that in this effort I am influenced by no selfish or personal considerations, but by pity for her, and detestation, and abhorrence of this scheme, and that I would do the same were there twenty rivals in the field, and I the last and least favoured of them all. You would, I believe, said Newman. But where are you hurrying now? Homewards, answered Nicholas. Do you come with me, or I shall say good night? I'll come a little way if you will but walk, not run, said Knox. I cannot walk tonight, Newman, returned Nicholas hurriedly. I must move rapidly, or I could not draw my breath. I'll tell you what I've said and done tomorrow. Without waiting for a reply, he darted off at a rapid pace, and plunging into the crowds which jungle street, was quickly lost to view. He's a violent youth at times, said Newman, looking after him, and yet, like him for it, there's cause enough now, or the deuce is in it. Hope, I said hope, I think. Ralph Nicobai and Greed with their heads together and hope for the opposite party. Ho, ho! It was with a very melancholy laugh that Newman Knox concluded this soliloquy, and it was with a very melancholy shake of the head and a very rueful countenance that he turned about and went plodding on his way. This, under ordinary circumstances, would have been to some small tavern or dram shop that being his way in more senses than one. But Newman was too much interested and too anxious to betake himself even to this resource, and so, with many desponding and dismal reflections, went straight home. It had come to pass that afternoon that Miss Molina Kenwicks had received an invitation to repair next day Pastima from Westminster Bridge onto the El Pie Island at Twinkenham, there to make merry upon a cold collation, bottled beer, shrub and shrimps, and to dance in the open air to the music of a locomotive band, conveyed Tita for the purpose, the steamer being specially engaged by a dancing master of extensive connection for the accommodation of his numerous pupils, and the pupils displaying their appreciation of the dancing master's services by purchasing themselves and inducing their friends to do the like, divers light blue tickets, entitling them to join the expedition. Of these light blue tickets, one had been presented by an ambitious neighbour to Miss Molina Kenwigs with an invitation to join her daughters. 
and Mrs. Kenwigs, rightly deeming that the honour of the family was involved in Miss Molina's making the most splendid appearance possible on so short a notice, and testifying to the dancing master that there were other dancing masters beside him, and to all fathers and mothers present, that other people's children could learn to be genteel beside theirs, had fainted away twice under the magnitude of her preparations, but upheld by a determination to sustain the family name or perish in the attempt, was still hard at work when Newman Noggs came home. Now, between the Italian ironing of frills, the flouncing of trousers, the trimming of frocks, the faintings and the coming to again, incidental to the occasion, Mrs. Kenwigs had been so entirely occupied that she had not observed until within an hour before that the flaxen tails of Miss Molina's hair were in a manner run to seed, and that unless she were put under the hands of a skilful hairdresser, she never could achieve that signal triumph over the daughters of all other people, anything less than which would be tantamount to defeat. This discovery drove Mrs. Kenwigs to despair, for the hairdresser lived three streets and eight dangerous crossings off. Molina could not be trusted to go there alone, even if such a proceeding were strictly proper, of which Mrs. Kenwigs had her doubts. Mr. Kenwigs had not returned from business, and there was nobody to take her. So Mrs. Kenwigs first slapped Miss Kenwigs for being the cause of her vexation, and then shed tears. You ungrateful child, said Mrs. Kenwigs, after I have gone through what I have this night, for your good. I can't help it, ma, replied Molina, also in tears. My hair will grow. Don't talk to me, you naughty thing, said Mrs. Kenwigs. Don't. Even if I was to trust you by yourself, and you were to escape being run over, I know you'd run into Laura Chopkins, who was the daughter of the ambitious neighbor, and tell her what you're going to wear tomorrow. I know you would. You've no proper pride in yourself, and are not to be trusted out of sight for an instant. Deploring the evil-mindedness of her eldest daughter in these terms, Mrs. Kenwigs distilled fresh drops of vexation from her eyes, and declared that she did believe there never was anybody so tried as she was. Thereupon, Molina Kenwigs wept afresh, and they bemoaned themselves together. Matters were at this point, as Newman Noggs was heard to limp past the door on his way upstairs. When Mrs. Kenwigs, gaining new hope from the sound of his footsteps, hastily removed from her countenance as many traces of her late emotion as were effaceable on so short a notice, and presenting herself before him and representing the dilemma, entreated that he would escort Molina to the hairdresser's shop. I wouldn't ask you, Mr. Knox, said Mrs. Kenwigs, if I didn't know what a good, kind-hearted creature you are. No, not for words. 
I am a weak constitution, Mr. Knox, but my spirit would no more let me ask a favour where I thought there was a chance of his being refused than it would let me submit to see my children trampled down and trod upon by envy and lowness. Newman was too good-natured not to have consented, even without this avowal of confidence on the part of Mrs. Kenwigs. Accordingly, a very few minutes had elapsed when he and Miss Molina were on their way to the hairdressers. It was not exactly a hairdresser's. That is to say, people of a coarse and vulgar turn of mind might have called it a barber's, for they not only cut and curled ladies elegantly and children carefully, but shaved gentlemen easily. Still, it was a highly genteel establishment, quite first-rate in fact, and they were displayed in the window, besides other elegancies, waxen busts of a light lady and a dark gentleman, which were the admiration of the whole neighbourhood. Indeed, some ladies had gone so far as to assert that the dark gentleman was actually a portrait of the spirited young proprietor, and the great similarity between their headdresses. Both wore very glossy hair, with a narrow walk straight down the middle, and a profusion of flat circular curls on both sides, encouraged the idea. The better informed among the sex, however, made light of this assertion. For however willing they were, and they were very willing, to do full justice to the handsome face and figure of the proprietor, they held the countenance of the dark gentleman in the window to be an exquisite and abstract idea of masculine beauty, realized sometimes, perhaps, among angels and military men, but very rarely embodied to gladden the eyes of mortals. It was to this establishment that Newman Knox led Miss Kenwigs in safety. The proprietor, knowing that Miss Kenwigs had three sisters, each with two flaxen tails, and all good for sixpence apiece, once a month at least, promptly deserted an old gentleman whom he had just lathered for shaving, and handing him over to the journeyman, who was not very popular among the ladies by reason of his obesity and middle age, waited on the young lady himself. Just as this change had been effected, there presented himself for shaving, a big, burly, good-humoured coal heaver with a pipe in his mouth, who, drawing his hand across his chin, requested to know when a shiver would be disengaged. The journeyman, to whom this question was put, looked doubtfully at the young proprietor, and the young proprietor looked scornfully at the coal heaver, observing at the same time, You won't get shaved here, my man. Why not? said the coal heaver. We don't shave gentlemen in your line, remarked the young proprietor. Why, I see you a shaving of a baker when I was a looking through the window last week, said the coal heaver. It's necessary to draw the line somewheres, my fine fella, replied the principal. We draw the line there. We can't go beyond bakers. 
if we was to get any lower than bakers, our customers would desert us, and we might shut up shop. You must try some other establishment, sir. We couldn't do it here. The applicant stared, grinned at Newman Knox, who appeared highly entertained, looked slightly round the shop, as if in depreciation of the pomatum pots and other articles of stock, took his pipe out of his mouth and gave a very loud whistle and then put it in again and walked out. The old gentleman who had just been laddered and who was sitting in a melancholy manner with his face turned towards the wall appeared quite unconscious of this incident and to be insensible to everything around him in the death of a reverie, a very mournful one to judge from the size he occasionally vented in which he was absorbed. Affected by this example, the proprietor began to clip Miss Kenwick's, the journeyman to scrape the old gentleman, and Newman Noggs to read last Sunday's paper, all three in silence. When Miss Kenwick's uttered a shrill little scream, and Newman, raising his eyes, saw that it had been elicited by the circumstance of the old gentleman turning his head and disclosing the features of Mr. Lillivick, the collector. The features of Mr. Lillivick they were, but strangely altered. If ever an old gentleman had made a point of appearing in public, shaved close and clean, that old gentleman was Mr. Lillivick. If ever a collector had borne himself like a collector, and assumed before all men a solemn and portentous dignity as if he had the world on his books and it was all two quarters in area. That collector was Mr. Lillivick. And now, there he sat, with the remains of a beard at least a week old encumbering his chin, a soiled and crumpled shirt frill crouching, as it were, upon his breast. Instead of standing boldly out, a demeanor so abashed and drooping, so despondent and expressive of such humiliation, grief and shame, that if the souls of forty unsubstantial housekeepers, all of whom had had their water cut off for non-payment of the rate, could have been concentrated in one body, that one body could hardly have expressed such mortification and defeat as were now expressed in the person of Mr. Lillivick, the collector. Newman Knox uttered his name, and Mr. Lillivick ground, then coughed to hide it. But the groan was a full-sized groan, and the cough was but a wheeze. Is anything the matter? said Newman Knox. Matter, sir! cried Mr. Lillivick. The plug of life is dry, sir, and but the mud is left. This speech, the style of which Newman attributed to Mr. Lillivick's recent association with theatrical characters, not being quite explanatory, Newman looked as if he were about to ask another question, when Mr. Lillivick prevented him by shaking his hand mournfully and then waving his own. Let me be shaved, said Mr. Lillivick. 
It shall be done before Molina. It is Molina, isn't it? Yes, said Newman. Ken Wixis have got a boy, haven't they? inquired the collector. Again, Newman said yes. Is it a nice boy? demanded the collector. It ain't a very nasty one, returned Newman, rather embarrassed by the question. Susan Kenwicks used to say, observed the collector, that if she ever had another boy, she hoped it might be like me. Is this one like me, Mr. Knox? This was a puzzling inquiry, but Newman evaded it by replying to Mr. Lilivick that he thought the baby might possibly come like him in time. I should be glad to have somebody like me somehow, said Mr. Lilivick before I die. You don't mean to do that yet a while, said Newman. On to which Mr. Lilivick replied in a solemn voice, Let me be shaved. And again, consigning himself to the hands of the journeyman, said no more. This was remarkable behavior. So remarkable did it seem to Miss Molina that that young lady at the imminent hazard of having her ear sliced off, had not been able to forbear looking round some score of times during the foregoing colloquy. Of her, however, Mr. Lilivick took no notice, rather striving, so at least it seemed to Newman Knox, to evade her observation and to shrink into himself whenever he attracted her regards. Newman wondered very much what could have occasioned this altered behavior on the part of the collector. But philosophically, reflecting that he would most likely know sooner or later, and that he could perfectly afford to wait, he was very little disturbed by the singularity of the old gentleman's deportment. The cutting and calling being at last concluded, the old gentleman who had been some time waiting, rose to go, and walking out with Newman and his charge, took Newman's arm, and proceeded for some time without making any observation. Newman, who in power of taciturnity was excelled by few people, made no attempt to break silence, and so they went on until they had very nearly reached Miss Molina's home when Mr. Lilivick said, Were the Kenwickses very much overpowered, Mr. Knox, by that news? What news, returned Newman, that about my being married, suggested Newman. Ah, replied Mr. Lilivick with another groan, this time not even disguised by a whiz. It made Ma cry when she knew it, interposed Miss Molina. But we kept it from her for a long time, and Pa was very low in his spirits. But he is better now, and I was very ill, but I am better too. Would you give your great uncle Lilivick a kiss if he was to ask you, Molina? said the collector with some hesitation. Yes, Uncle Lilivick, I would, returned Miss Molina, with the energy of both her parents combined. But not Aunt Lilivick. She's not an aunt of mine, and I'll never call her one. Immediately upon the utterance of those words, 
Mr. Lelivick caught Miss Molina up in his arms and kissed her, and being by this time at the door of the house where Mr. Kenwick's lodged, which, as has been before mentioned, usually stood wide open, he walked straight up into Mr. Kenwick's sitting room and put Miss Molina down in the mist. Mr. and Mrs. Kenwick's were at supper. At the sight of their perjured relative, Mrs. Kenwick's turned fit and pale, and Mr. Kenwick's rose majestically. Kenwick's, said the collector, shake hands. Sir, said Mr. Kenwick's, the time has been when I was proud to shake hands with such a man as that man has now surveys me. The time has been, sir, said Mr. Kenwick's, when a visit from that man has excited in me and my family's bosoms sensations both natural and awakening. But now I look upon that man with emotions totally surpassing everything, and I ask myself, where is his honor? Where is his straightforwardness? And where is his human nature? Susan Kenwigs, said Mr. Lilivick, turning humbly to his knees. Don't you say anything to me? She is not equal to it, sir, said Mr. Kenwigs, striking the table emphatically. What with the nursing of a healthy baby and the reflections upon your cruel conduct? Four pints of malt liquor a day is hardly able to sustain her. I am glad, said the poor collector meekly, that the baby is a healthy one. I am very glad of that. This was touching the Kenwigses on the tenderest point. Mrs. Kenwigs instantly burst into tears, and Mr. Kenwigs evicted great emotion. My pleasantest feeling all the time that child was expected, said Mr. Kenwigs mournfully, was a thinking, if it's a boy, as I hope it may be, for I have heard its uncle Lilivik say again and again he would prefer a having a boy next. If it's a boy, what will his uncle Lilivik say? What will he like him to be called? Will he be Peter or Alexander or Pompey or Diogenes? Or what will he be? And now when I look at him, a precious, unconscious, helpless infant, with no use in his little arms but to tear his little cap, and no use in his little legs but to kick his little self, when I see him lying on his mother's lap, cooing and cooing, and in his innocent state, almost choking himself with his little fist. When I see him, such an infant as he is, and think that that Uncle Lilivik, as was once a going to be so fond of him, has withdrawn himself away, such a feeling of vengeance comes over me, as no language can depict her, and I feel as if even that holy babe was a telling me to hate him. This affecting picture moved Mrs. Kenwigs deeply. After several imperfect words, which vainly attempted to struggle to the surface, but were drowned and washed away by the strong tide of her tears, she spake, 
Uncle, said Mrs. Kenwigs, to think that you should have turned your back upon me and my dear children, and upon Kenwigs, which is the author of their being, you who was once so kind and affectionate, and who, if anybody had told us such a thing of, we should have withered with scorn like lightning. You, that little Lily Vick, her first and earliest boy was named after at the very altar. Oh, gracious! Was it money that we cared for? said Mr. Kenwigs. Was it property that we ever thought of? No, cried Mrs. Kenwigs. I scorn it. So do I, said Mr. Kenwigs, and always did. My feelings have been lacerated, said Mrs. Kenwigs. My heart has been torn asunder with anguish. I have been thrown back in my confinement. My unoffending infant has been rendered uncomfortable and fractious. Molina has pined herself away to nothing. All this I forget and forgive, and with you, uncle, I never can quarrel. But never ask me to receive her. Never do it, uncle, for I will not, I will not, I won't, I won't, I won't. Susan, my dear, said Mr. Kenwigs, consider your child. Yes, shrieked Mrs. Kenwigs, I will consider my child. I will consider my child, my own child, that no uncles can deprive me of, my own hated, despised, deserted, cut-off little child. And here the emotions of Mrs. Kenwigs became so violent that Mr. Kenwigs was fain to administer Hatshorn internally, and Vinegar externally, and to destroy a stale lace, four petticoat strings, and several small buttons. Newman had been a silent spectator of this scene, for Mr. Lillivick had signed to him not to withdraw, and Mr. Kenwigs had further solicited his presence by a nod of invitation. When Mrs. Kenwigs had been in some degree restored, and Newman as a person possessed of some influence with her, had remonstrated and begged her to compose herself. Mr. Lillivick said in a faltering voice, I never shall ask anybody here to receive my... I needn't mention the word. You know what I mean. Ken Weeks and Susan yesterday was a week she eloped with a half-pay captain. Mr. and Mrs. Ken Weeks started together. Eloped with a half-pay captain, repeated Mr. Lillivick. Basely and falsely eloped with a half-pay captain, with a bottle-nosed captain that any man might have considered himself safe from. It was in this room, said Mr. Lillivick, looking sternly round, that I first see Henrietta Petoka. It is in this room that I turn her off forever. This declaration completely changed the whole posture of affairs. Mrs. Kenwigs threw herself upon the old gentleman's neck, bitterly reproaching herself for her late harshness, and exclaiming, if she had suffered, what must his sufferings have been? Mr. Kenwigs grasped his hand and vowed eternal friendship and remorse. 
Mrs. Kenwigs was horror-stricken to think that she should have ever nourished in her bosom such a snake, adder, viper, serpent, and base crocodile as Henrietta Petoka. Mr. Kenwigs argued that she must have been bad indeed not to have improved by so long a contemplation of Mrs. Kenwigs' virtue. Mrs. Kenwigs remembered that Mr. Kenwigs had often said that he was not quite satisfied of the propriety of Miss Petoka's conduct, and wondered how it was that she could have been blinded by such a wretch. Mr. Kenwigs remembered that he had had his suspicions, but did not wonder why Mrs. Kenwigs had not had hers, as she was all chastity, purity, and truth, and Henrietta all business, falsehood, and deceit. And Mr. and Mrs. Kenwigs both said, with strong feelings and tears of sympathy, that everything happened for the best, and conjured the good collector not to give way to unavailing grief, but to seek consolation in the society of those affectionate relations whose arms and hearts were ever open to him. Out of affection and regard for you, Susan and Kenwigs, said Mr. Lillivick, and not out of revenge or spite against her, for she is below it, I shall tomorrow morning settle upon your children and make payable to the survivors of them when they come of age of marry that money that I once meant to leave them in my will. The deed shall be executed tomorrow, and Mr. Knox shall be one of the witnesses. He hears me promise this, and he shall see it done. Overpowered by this noble and generous offer, Mr. Kenwigs, Mrs. Kenwigs, and Miss Molina Kenwigs all began to sob together, and the noise of their sobbing, communicating itself in the next room, where the children lay abed, and causing them to cry too. Mr. Kenwigs rushed wildly in, and bringing them out in his arms, by two and two, tumbled them down in their nightcaps and gowns at the feet of Mr. Lillivick, and called upon them to thank and bless him. And now, said Mr. Lillivick, when a heart-rending scene had ensued, and the children were cleared away again, give me some supper. This took place twenty miles from town. I came up this morning, and have been lingering about all day, without being able to make up my mind to come and see you. I humoured her in everything. She had her own way. She did just as she pleased, and now she has done this. There was twelve teaspoons and twenty-four power pound in sovereigns. I missed them first. It's a trial. I feel I shall never be able to knock a double knock again when I go my rounds. Don't say anything more about it, please. The spoons were what? Never mind, never mind. With such muttered outpourings as these, the old gentleman shed a few tears. But they got him to the elbow chair and prevailed upon him without much pressing to make a hearty supper. And by the time he had finished his first pipe and disposed of half a dozen glasses out of a crown bowl of punch ordered by Mr. Kenwigs in celebration of his return to the bosom of his family, he seemed 
though still very humble, quite resigned to his fate, and rather relieved than otherwise by the flight of his wife. When I see that man, said Mr. Kenwigs, with one hand round Mrs. Kenwigs waist, his other hand supporting his pipe, which made him wink and cough very much, for he was no smoker, and his eyes on Molina, who sat upon her uncle's knee. When I see that man as mingling once again in the spear which he adorns, and see his affections developing themselves in legitimate situations, I feel that his nature is as elevated and expanded as his standing afore society as a public character is unimpeached, and the voices of my infant children, provided for in life, seem to whisper to me softly. This is an event at which even itself looks down. End of chapter 52